enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Good morning. That text is an interesting one, basically. The King James Version says, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way. This text says, Small is the gate and and, uh, straight is the way. But basically, the word uh, small is the same word as the word straight in the King James. And it it actually means narrow, slim. And the the, uh, way... Narrow as a way means narrow or slim. So it's almost a redundancy in terminology. In other words, it's saying the same thing for both both uh, objects. It's saying the gate is narrow and the road is narrow. And uh, it's talking about re- being restricted. Restrictions are, are not always pleasant. And uh, sometimes they, they feel more confining then they they feel good but we do know that it is good to have boundaries it is good for us and for our children for our family for our society to have a boundary and those boundaries are usually defined by law the law tells us where we can go and cannot go and the rules of good behavior tell us the same thing we understand that there there are places that we should not go and we should not go beyond, and rules that we should not break. Now, Jesus mentioned this in Matthew chapter 5 as well, and, and of course, I'm, I'm just going to be referring in, in this uh, time I have to speak with you about things we read in the Bible. The society has taken an in, entirely different course. If you want to know what the world thinks about these subjects, we have to go somewhere else because we won't hear the world's concept from this place. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, verse 17, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law and the prophets. He said, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now what he meant by that was, he came to complete them. He came to fill them out. Sometimes people look back at the Ten Commandments and say, look at these commandments. All, all of them seem to be right and good, except the Sabbath. And that that seems to be about a day and it seems to be about a ritual and it is. And Jesus, when he said he came to fulfill them, he said that he came to complete them. So he did. He completed the Sabbath because Jesus is the rest for us. We do not need a certain day of the week in order to rest because that was pointing toward the time when Jesus would come. But the text says, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall no pass, no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Okay. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He shall break, he shall do them and teach them. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about rules and regulations. Now, again, the Sabbath day was, a, was fulfilled in Jesus. But the, the loving God and honoring God and not committing adultery and not committing murder and not coveting and so forth, 
that, that is continually being fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled them in his life, and we must, in, in our lives, do the same thing. Well, keeping strict regulations, keeping on the straight and narrow. Did your mother ever tell you that? To stay on the straight and narrow? Mine did. I don't know where the expression, I think the expression came from this particular text in Matthew chapter uh, <clears throat> uh, 5. Chapter 7, I mean, in chapter 5 also. In, chapter, in this chapter, it talks about keeping the law. But basically, we are, we are advised to stay within the boundaries of law. And, and that, that's good for everyone. It's good for society. It's, it's, uh, it's good to maintain order, to maintain discipline, to maintain peace, and to maintain consideration for your neighbor. In other words, you have boundaries, you have fences around your yard, and yet that should tell your neighbor, even if you don't have a fence, it should tell your neighbor that there should be respect for your property and for your person and so forth. So we have rules and regulations that define us and help us and keep us in a state of respect for one another and peace, basically. So that's why we have laws and rules and regulations. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. Not only in our life with Jesus Christ, but in our ordinary common life. So society says we have boundaries. And we tell our children we have boundaries. And we tell our neighbors, and our neighbors tell us we have boundaries. Business tells us we have boundaries. We can... We, should not step over those boundaries. We should not violate those boundaries. And in doing so, we can, we can have a uh, good relationship with our neighbors, our friends, our family. Now, that's what we want to talk about. Because, in effect, lawlessness is evil. Yeah. Lawlessness is evil in and of itself. I forgot something here. I forgot my glasses. So this will be a little different. I, I can't read my notes without my glasses. And sometimes it's hard for me to read the Bible text without my glasses. But now let's, let's, look, at, let's look at a couple of texts in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in verse 8, and this text says, The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, which some having turned away and have swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling to be desired to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor where they are firm. Now that's the introduction. Verse 8 says, We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy, for profane, for murders or fathers, murders of mothers, murders of manslayers, whoremongers, and them that defile themselves with mankind. What he's saying basically is, keep the law. And the law was made not for the person who abides in the law, but the law was made for the lawless, for those who do not respect the law, who, for those who do not want to be subject to the law. In this same context, in chapter 2, at verse 1 and 2, Paul said, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and sincerity, or all godliness and honesty. 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He said, make, make a prayer for all men, kings, and all that are in authority that we may lead a good and peaceable life. So he's talking about, he's talking about keeping the law. He's talking about making sure that we adhere to, to that which the, the uh, law demands of us in our society. And the reason for it is that we might have peace. Now, in Titus chapter 3, at verse 1 and 2, it says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and to powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready unto every good work. To obey magistrates. He's talking about keeping the law. Now, we, we need to have a peaceable and a decent, ordered society. And in order to do that, we keep the law. We have laws that do that. Now, obviously, there are some laws that that promote lawlessness and promote evil. Now, that's not what we're what we're talking about. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter thirteen talks about governments that are supposed to uphold righteousness and goodness and lawfulness, and they're they're supposed to reward those who abide by the law and punish the evil doer. So, we're not talking about bad laws that make you do bad things or unholy, ungodly things. We're talking about laws that tell us that we need to be ordered in our society. We need to be, we need to be controlled, basically, is, is what it's talking about. And that uh, we should be careful for our behavior in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. The, the uh, text says this, 1 Peter 2 at verse 21, it says that, uh, I need my glasses again. Even whereunto you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now the point I want to make here is that Jesus kept the law. He, he followed the law. He was a, a law-abiding citizen. And the idea was that as he kept the law, he set a model or he set an example for us in the keeping of the law. He, he did not pay attention to, or should I say pay attention to, maybe I should use this term. He did not emphasize the ritual aspects of the law. Do you know what I'm talking about? He didn't talk about whether or not you were doing this in the proper way, the, performing the ritual. He did not approach the priest and saying, look, you're wearing the wrong clothes for the occasion. He didn't, look at, he didn't look at those who were offering the sacrifices and saying, you're not doing this in the right way on the right day, in the right process, in the right manner. He didn't say, he didn't deal with any of that. Although they were, at that time, they weren't doing it right, basically, from what the Old Testament says, what the Old Testament regulated. But Jesus did not approach them in that way. Matter of fact, the only time he talked about the ritual was when he said that they were overemphasizing that. They were making the cup and platter clean on the outside, but they were ignoring the inside. Okay. Let's talk about rituals just a minute. When, when we talk about abiding by the law, I don't want you to think that I'm talking about abiding by a ritualistic law, something that you have to do in a certain manner or God will not be pleased with you. 
that you have to follow because rituals are easy to do. Rituals are easy to complete. It would be easy for you to perform the ritual of lighting a candle, for instance, and lighting it the right way with the right type of lighter and so forth, burning it in the right, right way. Now, that's sometimes a religious ritual. That's easy to complete. You learn how to do that, and you can do it. It's easy, ritualistically, to come to church on Sunday at a certain time. That's a ritual sometimes. We can make it a ritual if we're not careful. So it's easy to follow a ritual, and that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the straight and narrow way. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about the type of life that we live. That's what he's referring to. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, when he left the example, he's not leaving us an example of ritualistic service to God. Not at all. We see nothing in the life of Jesus, basically, about rituals. He kept the Passover. He went up to the feast at certain times. But there's nothing about him following a ritual to the letter. Nothing at all. But there is something about the example that he gave us of keeping the law. Now that's, that's what we want to refer to at this time. Rituals aside then. Let's lay the rituals aside. Say, okay, we're not lighting a torch at a certain day at a certain time. We're not following a certain program of behavior. What we're talking about now is the life that Jesus led that tells us about the life that we should lead and about how we should be. He is an example. He's our model, and we do need a model of life. He is our model of life. So let's look at the model of life that he's given us. There are just three points that I want to deal with today, and I think these are major points that involve his life. The first one is that he led a life of unselfish behavior. Jesus was not a selfish man. Jesus was not concerned with what he had. As a matter of fact, it says he, 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 he became poor for our sakes that we might be rich. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. As a matter of fact, it says that uh, he was unselfish in everything that he did. He gave himself. There, there are three three texts that talk about how he gave himself. Basically, that's what they say. One text is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 6. He gave himself for our sins. In Colossians chapter 1 at verse 4, at verse 4 he gave himself. And, it, and he gave himself for us. And in Titus chapter 2 at verse 14, it says that he gave himself a ransom for us. So he gave himself a ransom. He gave himself. He gave himself for our sins. Three texts that talk about that. He gave himself. So we know as we read the New Testament that Jesus was giving unselfishly to us. So if we want an example of his life, that's what, that's what we look at. He gave himself a ransom. He gave himself for sins. He gave himself to redeem us from all sins. And he was loyal. We know he was loyal. He was loyal to his father. He said on one occasion in, in John chapter 5, I believe it is, and at verse 35, he said that he came to do his father's will. What, whatever his father said, he said, I came to do his will. I came to do what he said. 
And he did. He followed through whatever his father said. He was not loyal to anyone else. He was loyal to his friends, of course. But in this sense, the sense that he was going to do what his father told him to do, he was loyal. He did it. And he, uh, there are several texts along this same line about his loyalty. One is found in John chapter 8 at verse, I believe it's verse 39. Let me look at that text real quick for you. And we'll read it. John 8 and verse 38, he said, I speak that which I have seen with my father, you do that which you have seen with your father. So he was loyal only, he was loyal to his father. And at verse 29, I believe he also said this, he said, he that sent me is with me, the father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. So basically, he was unselfish, he was loyal, and he was committed. By that I mean that he knew what his father told him to do. Okay, his father sent him on an errand. And that errand was to save us from our sins. And the methodology that was going to be employed was that he was going to be crucified on the cross. He was going to be accused falsely of crimes he did not commit. He was going to be scourged. He was going to be examined. He was going to be questioned. He was going to be whipped. He was going to be humiliated. He was going to be embarrassed. He was going to have all of his clothes taken off of him. He was going to be shamed. He was going to have to die cruel and a heartless death. He knew that. And he knew something else. He knew that his father was going to be hurt as deeply as he was being hurt. He knew all of that. But he was committed. He knew what was it going to cost him. He knew what type of life he was going to live and what kind of pressure the devil was going to bring upon him, but he was committed. He told his apostles on three different occasions that he was going to go to the city of Jerusalem. He was going to be betrayed by his friends. He was going to be scourged. He was going to be taken to the cross, falsely accused. Then he was going to be crucified. He told them that. And then when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, now he's committed. He knows where he's going. The point I'm making is that Jesus did not do this happenstance. He did not all of a sudden say, uh-oh, I'm caught. How do I get out of it? He knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. And because he knew what was happened, he was committed. He was so committed that he did it in spite of his best, his own personal judgment. Because when he was in, in, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he was praying, he was praying to his father in Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 42, I think it is. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed on three three occasions even there and came he he asked his disciples to pray with him and they went to sleep 
He woke them again. They went to sleep again. He prayed again. And he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And you know what? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was committed. He did it in spite of the fact that he did not agree entirely with what was happening. He knew he had to do it. He knew it was necessary. He knew it was going to he knew what it was going to do for us, but he also knew what it was going to do to his father. And when he was on the cross, of course the, the Psalms was uh, fulfilled when he said, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He knew. He knew that the father forsook him had to turn his face away because his father could not bear to watch his son die on the cross. Couldn't bear it. And yet Jesus was committed. He knew all of this, and yet he was committed, and he followed through. He did it. Now, he is our example. Now, that's why I, I, I began this way. We're talking about the straight and narrow. Sometimes when we talk about the straight and narrow, we don't think in terms of the kind of life we're living. We think in terms of rituals. Straight and narrow means that I must pray before I go to sleep. Straight and narrow means that I must give so much of my, I must contribute so much. Straight and narrow means that I, I must, uh, even though I don't want to, I have to forgive my enemies. Straight and narrow means that I must do certain things, certain religious things. Rituals. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about we have to follow Jesus. We have to follow the example he gave us. We have to walk in his footsteps. It's narrow. It's, it's confining. It certainly is. Well, let's, let's look at this for just a minute. First of all, if, if, we, if we walk the straight and narrow, for us, the straight and narrow tells us one thing above all other things. There is only one God. Our society is telling us different. Our society is telling us that we're too narrow, we're too straight, we're too restricted. We ought to believe that there are other deities. There's the man up above, sometimes they call it. Sometimes it's just there's a supreme power. All sorts of references, except for the fact that the Bible says, basically, there is only one God. There is only one God. And for me to follow, Jesus didn't believe in more than one Father. He knew there's only one God. He's my example. Okay, there is only one God, and we're told that. And we're told that when we start down that path, there's only one gate. There's only one gate you can go through. Okay. John chapter 10 and verse 7. Jesus said, I am the gate. I'm the door. I'm it. So if I'm going to be with God in heaven, if I'm going to be right in my life, I have to use that gate. I, there's no other gate for me. I can't use a gate that's, some, that's somewhere else. And the gate, of course, Jesus said, I am, notice please, John 14, 6, I am the way. It's just Him. It's not anybody else. It's not any other deity. It's not any other person that claims to be a prophet. It's nobody else. He said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's very restrictive. 
Okay. So in order for me, I, what I do then is I look at his word, what he has said, his counsel, and I say, okay, Lord, how do I go? How do, what do I do? The first thing I do is I, I say, okay, I believe in you. I believe in you. You are the son of God. You are the only way. And as we read the New Testament, of course, and this is, this is our source in Ephesians chapter 4, it's very restrictive in terms of, of the number of ways there are available for us, the number of things we can do, number of things that we can believe. That text says, Endeavor, endeavoring to keep, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity, that's the term oneness, that's narrow again, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there's one body and one Spirit. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Okay, that's very narrow. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm, I'm the one. And this text says there's one body, that's the word church, basically. The body is the church. There's one body, there's one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, only one heaven. And there's one God and Father, one faith, one baptism. So there's a narrow way that we can find and that we need to find when we're trying to follow Jesus. So basically, what we're, what we're saying is we have, we have the, the same restriction for ourselves. And I'm talking about the fact that we need to be unselfish in our attitude and loyal committed but let's follow this just a minute there is a singleness of heart that we have to have if we're going to follow him we'll get to these points in just a minute we'll get to the points that we're talking about how we should conduct our lives but we, we have to first of all recognize that it's straight and it's narrow it's so narrow that in the word of God we're told that uh, that if our eye is single, we're full of light. That eye single means our eyes on Jesus Christ. If our eye is evil, we're full of darkness. That's found in the book of Luke. And then, uh, let's see, chapter 4. Of, uh, let me get my notes, please. Luke 11, verse 34. But we're also told in Ephesians chapter 6, at verse 5, that there should be a singleness of heart to serve God, a singleness of heart. And we're also told that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. And then in Matthew chapter 6, at verse 24, we're told that we can only serve one master. A man cannot serve two masters. If he tries to serve two masters, what will happen? Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will serve the one and despise the other. So there's only one, one way that we can go. Okay. Now, our, in, in order to follow Jesus, in order to make our eyes single, he is our role model. Now, how about being unselfish? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about our attitude toward what we have. And there are other texts too that we'll refer to. Second Corinthians chapter 9, and in verse 8 it says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always have all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. 
Okay. Every good work. What's a good work? What, what sort of thing should we do? Jesus was unselfish in his behavior. We know that. He gave freely. He became poor for our sakes. He gave himself. This text says God will abound toward us that we, always having all sufficiency in everything, may abound unto every good work. James 1.27 says, Pure religion, undefiled before God, is this, that you visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 10, that was James 1.27. Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 10 tells us to do good unto all men, especially unto the household of faith. Now, that means that we share what we have. Jesus shared what he had. So the Christian, in order to walk the straight and narrow, has to be of a mind that says, I will share when the time comes and I need, and the need is there. I will share what I have with others. Basically, that's what, the, what it's saying. You know, the, there was a young man in Matthew chapter 19, you remember it. He asked the Lord, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, of course, that he had to keep the commandments. And then to follow up, he told him, you need to sell what you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And uh, he, he went away sorrowful. And Jesus was sorry, but sorrowful because the young man turned away. But, but then the question was put to Jesus by his apostles about the same thing. They, he was concerned about having to give up everything he had. And Jesus made the statement that has bothered a lot of people. He said, uh, it is, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Wow. Okay. People have grappled with that. We've grappled with that and grappled with it and grappled with it. Some said, okay, I can explain that. Okay, preacher, explain it. I'm not explaining it. I'm just saying, here's a hypothetical. The preacher says, okay, you know what? The eye of a needle was a, was a, was a narrow, uh, small, short gate that led into the marketplace in Jerusalem. And so in order to get through that wall, through that gate, the camel had to get down on his knees and crawl through on his knees or he'd have to get, get somehow get the hump off his back. There's the solution. Get down on your knees and crawl through the gate. There you can keep your riches. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what Jesus was saying. Okay, somebody else said, okay, let's see. The eye of a needle. What is, what is he talking about? Oh, okay. What he has to do is, he has to lay his riches down, get through the needle, and get the riches and bring them through. So, all sorts of ways that we have to defend keeping our money. When it comes to problems in our life, Problems are usually instituted by money. How do we keep our money? That's it. Jesus said the way you keep it is by giving it away. Now that's what he said. How did he keep his? How did he keep his wealth? How did he keep what he had gotten? He kept it by giving it away. He gave, even gave his life away. So what we're talking about then, when, when we talk about following and going through the narrow gate in the narrow way, is that we be unselfish, have an unselfish spirit. When, the, when we have the opportunity, as you therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, Ephesians 6.10. Have an opportunity, 
When you have an opportunity, don't hide your wallet. Don't hide your purse. Have an opportunity. Use the opportunity. That's what Jesus did. Okay. How about loyalty? I want to follow Jesus. Now, we're talking about the straight and narrow. We're not talking about liturgies. We're not talking about rituals. We're not talking about doing the same things over and over again that we think are religious. We're talking about a life that we live with our God. Okay. So I have an example of of being loyal. My loyalty then should lie with Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, now we're talking about loyalty. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. How do I know that I'm loyal to Jesus? When the time comes when I'm tempted to do something wrong, take a drink, get drunk, party hardy, I need to be loyal to Jesus. Say, I, my friend Jesus would not do this. I'm going to be loyal to him. Even though it's going to cost me, it's going to cost me my reputation. It's going to cost me my friends, maybe. It's going to cost me dearly my lifestyle. It's going to cost me everything, but can I be loyal? Jesus was. He's my example. You see, we're talking about the straight and the narrow. Okay. When I'm inclined to maybe steal, put something in my pocket that I shouldn't, take something from someone that does not belong to me, nobody will know except me and God. Maybe nobody will ever know about it, but when they do know about it, what do I do? Well, you know, that's what, that's what the, uh, the uh, fellow by the name of Eutychus, the taxpayer, he said, if I've taken anything from anybody, I'll restore it fourfold. He was going to give back what he stole. So maybe if a person had to repay four times what they stole, they wouldn't steal again. Again, the point is that our loyalty to Jesus is defined by our keeping of his commandments, of doing what he's told us to do. As a matter of fact, in John uh, 14, I believe it is, and also verse 15 and 21, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. My Father and I both will come and be with you. We'll both come to you. But you have to keep the commandments. Loyalty. Well, loyalty is not only to Jesus in the straight and narrow. Loyalty is to our friends. Be loyal to your friends. Jesus was loyal to his friends. So we have a, have a definition in John chapter 17. Jesus talked about friendship. And he talked about being their friends. If you, if you obey me, you, you're my friends. If you follow me, you're my friends. And he said in, in Romans chapter 5, and at first, I believe verse 8 and 9, that a good man will lay down his life for his friends. So loyalty involves being loyal to friends. So we're talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to be loyal to your friends. They can trust you. You can trust them. That's loyalty. Jesus had some friends that were loyal, but one was not. One friend betrayed him. So you're you're loyal to your friends, or should be loyal to your friends, and loyal to your family. You know, there are family regulations that are taught in the New Testament that Jesus emphasized for us and that the apostles emphasized for us. 
One is loyalty between a husband and wife. Loyalty. That, it, that means that the, the Bible teaches that the wife is to submit herself to her own husband. Ephesians 5.22. Because the husband is the head of the wife. I know the world does not like that terminology. The world does not like that idea that the wife is to obey her husband. Matter of fact, you will not hear that in the majority of the, the uh, ceremonies, marriage ceremonies in this country. Matter of fact, I've been told several times when I'm going to perform marriage ceremonies that the woman says, please do not use that term during the ceremony. Do not say that I have to obey my husband. That's the society we live in. But the Bible says, wives obey your husbands. So what do we do? Are we loyal to our family or not? Are we loyal to the, to the Lord in this matter? But it also says, husbands, love your wives. As your own flesh. Well, that's another loyalty that we have. So we have loyalty in terms of husbands and wives. Family members. Children, obey your parents. Ephesians 6 and verse 1. That's loyalty. So we have the, this idea of loyalty means that if we're going to follow the footsteps of Jesus, we need to be loyal in our relationship to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we're talking about going through the straight and narrow gate and walking the narrow way. All right. The next, of course, is commitment. How committed are we to Jesus? How committed are we to the way of life that we're to, we're to be following with him? How committed are we to take it, please excuse me, to the bloody end, to go all the way? How committed are we to walk with him until we can't walk any further. How committed. Jesus was committed. He knew what was going to happen to him. If we knew what we're going to go through before we get to the end, would we do it? Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he did it. Committed to the end. Stick with it. Stay with it. Don't quit. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. That's true. Stay with it. Whatever it takes, don't stop. Continue on. Don't falter. Don't flop off the side of the road and go somewhere else. Don't take a detour. That's easier said than done, but that's commitment. That's basically commitment. Don't stop until you finish. See it through. Don't compromise. Don't equivocate. Don't say, well, maybe I could do a little of this and it won't hurt. A little sin never hurt anybody. A little sin always hurt people. Always hurt people. Don't compromise. You know, Esau compromised. We have a, a, uh, an example in the Bible of Esau in chapter 28 of of Genesis, where Esau was the, was the guy that uh, sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. He compromised. 
What was he thinking? He was hungry. He'd been out hunting, and he came back to his brother Jacob, and he said, uh, give me something to eat. And Jacob said, and he saw the pottage, and uh, Jacob said, well, if we'll trade. Jacob was wiser than Esau. He said, we'll trade. And so Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. He compromised. He figured, what, what damage is there? What, what would it hurt? What it hurt was he gave up his birthright. What it hurt was he gave up all the blessings that God had provided for his family, for his father, that would pass down to him. That's what, what happened to a compromise. Don't compromise. Don't say, well, maybe, maybe the Bible doesn't mean that when it says that. Maybe the Bible doesn't mean when it says that, you, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Maybe it's talking about something that we can figure out. What it's saying is, it's harder for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than it is for a person who's committed to their riches to get into the gate of heaven. That's what it says. You're, you're attached to your riches. You can't drag them around with you. You can't, as a matter of fact, John, or, or Paul told Timothy, he said, he said, uh, the love of riches is the root of all evil. The love of riches. Well, that's what ties us to the riches, our love of it. Don't compromise. And also, don't look back. When you start, don't look back. Okay? If you've been looking back and thinking, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have done this. Maybe I shouldn't have maybe I shouldn't have committed my life. Maybe I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't have well, you know who who looked back? Who can tell me who looked back? Who? Okay, you know, don't you? <laughs> Hebrews eleven thirty-two says, "Lot's wife looked back. She looked back, and she did not get, did not escape from Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's where we should be. We should be at a point in our lives where we don't look back. We can, we should be unselfish. That, that is, and follow Jesus. He's our example. We're not talking about riches, rituals. We're talking about life. Unselfish." Be of an unselfish spirit. Be willing to give yourself. Jesus did. Be willing to give of yourself. Jesus did. Be loyal. You can be depended on. Jesus can depend on you. Your brother and sister in Christ can depend on you. And be committed. Stick with it. Don't stop. Not just because the reward is there. Just be committed because you are who you are. You are a child of God. Let's stand and sing our song.